Well, welcome back to the Bill Bennett Show. It's the podcast that takes a deeper look at the news of the day. We try to give you thoughtful perspective about what's happening in America, what will happen in America, at home and abroad. We take a look at the world through Donald Trump's eyes. We try to understand him, explain him, defend him sometimes, ask questions of him other times. But uh, we try to give you a perspective to help understand the presidency of Trump, which, of course, is America's number one topic of conversation at dinner tables, bars, everywhere else. Joining me today is Gordon Chang. We have an extensive discussion with Gordon. Gordon's the author of many books, including Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. We're going to discuss the meeting between Kim Jong-un and Xi Jinping, President of China or Emperor of China, and the possible meeting Kim Jong-un may have with President Trump. Also, Paul Kangor will join us. Paul is an author and professor of political science at Grove City College. Uh, the one thing that really distinguishes Paul is he knows more about Ronald Reagan than anybody I know. I want to compare Ronald Reagan with Donald Trump after a year or a year and a couple of months and see what Paul says about that. Also, Paul has written about a comparison between President Trump and President Bill Clinton when it comes to, let's say, other women. Uh, what's all right for Bill Clinton and Monica Lewinsky? Uh, well, the liberals uh, don't think it's all right when it comes to Donald Trump, even though the situations are quite different. We'll talk to Paul about those two comparisons. In my thoughts uh, today, that uh, to which I will give voice, I want to talk about some of the big issues going on and give you my assessment of them. Uh, and this is uh, for the moment, because things are changing fluid, always fluid in the age of Donald Trump. Then I want to talk about some emails we got and respond to them, comment on them, and Claude Jennings will help me here. First of all, everybody's talking about trade war. There is no trade war. The president said that. Oh, there's possibility of a trade war. But uh, these tariffs, which we're talking about, these have not been levied yet. And um, there's, what, 60 days or so to discuss them. But we're in a negotiating position here with China and others, but principally with China. And isn't it interesting the way the whole conversation's been narrowed from a sort of international trade war now to focus on the U.S. versus China? So let's see. Let's not push the panic button. Let's not, um, you know, say this is all out war with China on trade. Let's just say it's uh, President has sent a signal. Uh, President uh, Xi Jinping has, from China has sent a signal back. And uh, let's see what happens. Uh, let's keep an eye on negotiations. Um, second, uh, we just heard that the Mueller people have told the Trump lawyers, Bob Mueller's people have told the Trump lawyers, that the president is not a criminal target when it comes to uh, his investigation, but he is still a subject uh, of the investigation. So uh, no evidence uh, of a crime committed by the president here, uh, therefore not a target, at least not yet. Always this, not yet, not yet. Uh, but as a subject, there are things they want to talk to him about, things uh, that other people have said about them. They want to raise questions. This suggests some possible narrowing of the inquiry. I don't want to get ahead of myself here. I'll listen to smarter lawyers on this stuff than I am. I'm not a lawyer. I went to law school, but I'm not a practicing lawyer. Um, but I, it, it does seem to me that this gives the president's lawyers some room to say, all right, we'll have a discussion or we'll have an interview or we'll do an exchange of memoranda. You ask questions and we'll answer them. But, uh, you know, we want them we want them quite limited. It also may signal, you know, and I want to get ahead here, that uh, this thing may be kind of coming to a close. Um, everyone sure hopes so. It would be good for the country if it did. But um, I think that's good news. The president is not a criminal target. I think this will come as very bad news, Claude, to a lot of liberals when they hear the announcement the president is not a criminal target of the investigation, because I think that's just what a lot of liberals were hoping for, a lot of anti-Trump people, that he would be named as a criminal target. Right. I mean, it's one of the things that they hope stick. I mean, ultimately, the goal is to try to get him out of office. And so of I think course. by any means necessary. And so right. this will just target or this will just mean, all right, it's time to pivot to something else. Let's find something. Right. Uh, so we'll wait and see on that. The thing I want to talk about for just a couple of minutes, though, is uh, as we speak, the president's talking about sending the U.S. military, talking to General Mattis, Secretary Mattis, uh, and uh, about sending military to the border to stop this group of refugees, 1,500 refugees uh, from Honduras, uh, Central America, coming through Mexico, planning to cross the border. Uh, under the laws, as the president has said, the uh, refugee status is you've got to allow them in. Now they're interviewed, and then they're putting in 
they're released and put in some kind of holding situation. The president doesn't want to let them in. He just says, enough, uh, these borders are porous. I don't want to talk about the merits of that so much as I want to anticipate an issue, and I think it will be one of the biggest, if not the biggest issue. Uh, We never know with the Trump administration what else might happen. But as we get to the fall, and I think it is very much in the minds of people, this whole question, or interrelated questions, Claude, which you can say it's illegal immigration, but it's about sovereignty, it's about borders, it's about what does it mean to be an American. And you have very different views on this. Uh, President Trump and a lot of Americans feel much tougher borders, much stronger enforcement, put up the wall. This is still, for a lot of Trump supporters, the prominent promise, and it was a very prominent promise. Uh, And uh, protect our country. And remember the people who are here, who are citizens, and don't be so solicitive of people who are not. On the other side, there are people who are saying, you know, everything from you got to be more generous, you got to be more open, you got to remember the Statue of Liberty, uh, et cetera, et cetera, to people who are saying there are no borders. Uh, it's open borders. It's uh, sovereignty. is an old-fashioned concept. And if people want to come here, just open them up and let it come. These are two very different notions of, uh, of the border, the country, immigration, what it means to be an American. And these are deeply motivating, deeply strong impulses and ideas that people have. And I think they will be very much in play as we get to the election um, of 2018, these congressional uh, elections, elections for the House and the Senate. We've said before that a lot of people like Mark Corey and some other smart people believe this is uh, the issue that trumps everything. Excuse using Trump as a verb for liberals that uh, the immigration issue is overwhelms everything else takes priority and I I think the notion of national sovereignty and security and border is near the top or at the top for an awful lot of moderates and conservatives in this country um, this is as fundamental a question as as there is who are we what does it mean to be an American and uh, does sovereignty mean anything. I think this motivates people in a very emphatic way on both sides of the aisle. That's my point. All right, we'll revisit these questions as appropriate, maybe uh, even a little later this week. But right now I want to go to some emails. Uh, And uh, we have some uh, emails on various subjects. Love to get them. Keep them coming. What's the address? Oh, yeah, sure. BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. And please keep them coming. Write to BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Absolutely. That it? That's, That's it. it. Bill, Bill Bennett Podcast. All those letters, caps, anything matter? No, nope, doesn't matter. Just BillBennettPodcast Bill, at I'm gmail. still new to this yep. <laughs> or old to this. Uh, BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Go ahead, Clark. Yeah, so we've got quite a few. We'll start with Vin Nolan. Uh, it doesn't say where he's from, but he says, Dr. Bennett, I love your podcast. Your conversations and interviews are some of the very best. He just wishes that you could do them twice a week, at least. So Vin wants you to work more. Yeah, all right. Well, I'm, I'm, I will entertain that. We try to plug in and uh, put out uh, no, uh, ideas. And uh, what do we call them? Uh, what are, oh, yeah, uh, like little special features. Little special right. features yes. as, as things develop. I shouldn't call them little special features. Special uh, features. Special features. Yeah. Significant. Exactly. <laughs> but of moderate size special features. All right, fine. <laughs> But, uh, yeah, well, I'm doing what I can do, and uh, but I, I appreciate the invitation. Boy, somebody wants more Bill Bennett. I like that. Well, Sound of that. Ben could just listen to 20-minute increments at a time, so he can listen twice yeah. a week to this, yeah. you know, Maybe same Maybe he's podcast. got a long commute. Remember, exactly. long well, commute is our friend. That's you know? right. Okay. right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Uh, John in Atlanta, he says he enjoyed the latest podcast, especially the conversation with Byron uh, York. Uh, which is good health to you and the family. Uh, and then we've got Jane Swanson. doesn't say where Jane is from, but, uh, again, she loves the podcast, uh, and she knows that, you know, you practically, as you said before, you've practically raised Paul Ryan. Uh, and so she's got somewhat of a gripe with him. So it's distressing that he doesn't seem to be putting into practice the uh, ideas on fiscal responsibility and conservative values, given the recent budget. Uh, that she wishes President Trump had vetoed. And just what's your uh, thoughts on on that? Well, it's a fair question. Before I get to the substance of it, uh, it's a little strong to say I raised Paul Ryan. I I was his employer, uh, and in that relationship, I was a co-employer or co-parent. What was it? Heather has two mommies. At Empower America, I guess Paul Ryan had two daddies, and one of them was myself, and one of them was Jack Kemp. Right, she mentioned that. And he did spend more time with Kemp than with me, but I, I, I... 
I'd like to think I had some positive influence on Paul. He would say so, but uh, I, I, you know, I don't know. But I'm happy to happy to claim him. Uh, am I disappointed in him? Not really, because I think he's operating as best he can. Um, look, bottom line, this president is not that concerned with the deficits. Um, he has not shown much appetite for taking on the entitlements, which Paul Ryan will tell you he did this in the path to prosperity. You remember when we used to talk about the path to prosperity? Yeah, Morning in America, we talked about it a lot. With That's them. right, and he talked about Social Security, Medicaid, Medicare. And, uh, you know, they have to be addressed. The president has shown not much interest there. So Paul was very mu- instrumental behind, uh, you know, the tax uh, reform, and the tax bill, tax legislation, uh, and uh, supported it, and that's good. But, uh, no, a lot of the things that he cares about are not getting priority from the White House. Tough to get it when they're either not getting it priority from the White House or, or the Senate is uh, knocking you down. Paul Ryan will tell you, and we could have him on soon, that there are so many pieces of legislation that uh, the House has passed uh, under his leadership that haven't gone to the Senate. And um, this is uh, this is a real a real problem and a frustration. There's talk of Ryan possibly not uh, you know finishing finishing up or not running again. I don't know whether that's true or not. But I, do I approve of the budget? Uh, is it Jane who's asking? Yes. Uh, uh, no, I do not. I think the president doesn't approve of his own signature here. He said so. He said I made a mistake and shouldn't have signed it. It's just a lollapalooza budget, and it's uh, too much. You're listening to The Bill Bennett Show. Let's change direction and welcome Paul Kangor, author and professor of political science at Grove City College. He's also the executive director of the Center for Vision and Values, a Grove City College think tank and policy center. He is, uh, I think, the authority on Ronald Reagan in terms of the biography, the history, uh, the meaning and significance of Ronald Reagan, and he has many books. Uh, most recently and significantly, a pope and a president. Is that that is your most recent book, Paul? Right? It is, Bill. Yeah, thank you. It came out about a year ago. It was May May twenty seventeen. I want to talk to you about uh, Ronald Reagan and Donald Trump. I want to talk to you about Donald Trump and Bill Clinton. But uh, first, let's talk about I can't resist Ronald Reagan uh, and the Pope. Uh, I talk about a fly on the wall. I really wanted to be a fly on the wall because there was a, a point when the president visited the Pope where they got everybody out of the room and the two of them spoke. Is that right? Do I have that right? Oh, yeah. Yeah, sure. In fact, they there were a number of occasions. In fact, they they met more often than people realized. But the, but the first time was June 1982. And that was for 50 minutes alone at the Vatican Library. And there was the we we know what they say, what they said, some of it, because when they were finished, Ronald Reagan told Bill Clark. And you, you remember Bill Clark. Yeah, sure uh, Bill. Yeah. Bill became Bill was Reagan's national security advisor at the time. He was really his closest aide and confidant at the time. He knew Reagan going back to the gubernatorial years. And uh, I was Bill Clark's biographer. So Bill Clark told me all of this a number of times. Bill was there with him in Rome, and so Reagan told Bill what was said. He also told, um, you remember all these bills, uh, Bill Wilson yeah. as well, yeah, who became uh, became the ambassador to the Vatican. Reagan was the first president to recognize the Vatican in 1984. And the Holy Father John Paul II told, among others, Pio Laghi, Cardinal Pio Laghi, sure. who became the first apostolic nuncio to Washington. and. And gee, here's another bill, um, another Irish Catholic bill. Well, I'm <laughs> Bill Casey. Yeah. Um, Bill Casey. And, well, I'm the and right Bill's guy to part. be doing the interview here. Bill Bennett. Okay, <laughs> you, you really are. Another Reagan guy. Bill, okay, go ahead. Right. Uh, B- Bill Casey and Bill Clark would go to the Apostolic Nuncio in uh, 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 Nunciature in Washington and meet with P.O. Loggi. They call this Cappuccino Diplomacy. And because the Cardinal would serve them cappuccino. They did this 1982-1983. They became, along with Pio Laghi, the principal liaisons between Reagan and John Paul II. But but they would, so Reagan and, and John Paul II met at the Vatican Library for about 50 minutes. This was June 7, 1982. And they talked there about the, the Vatican records on this will not be released, Bill, until the year 2057. 
75-year seal on the record. Okay. But we know from what they told Clark and Loggie, they said to one another that they believed that God had spared their lives from assassination attempts made against them the previous year so that they could work together to defeat Soviet communism, liberate Eastern Europe, and, and defeat an evil empire. Yeah. All right. Um, that's the punchline. Uh, defeat Soviet communism. When people ask me who defeated Soviet communism, I say Ronald Reagan, Pope John Paul, Margaret Thatcher. Uh, is that a pretty good list? Do I have the right order? I think so. Yeah. I add. I would add Lech Walesa. Lech Walesa. Right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I uh, I would add even Boris Yeltsin. I think was very very important. Now I'm extending okay. the list a little bit more. And yeah, I'm like a lot of conservatives. I, I give Gorbachev a lot of credit. I okay. mean, it, with Gorbachev, a lot of this was not intentional. I mean, his goal with Perestroika and Glasnost, which he will say to this day, is one of the only one of that original group that's still alive. I think Lech Wallace is the only other. But he said all along his goal with Glasnost and Perestroika was, was to okay. save and preserve the Soviet Union. But But he did want a kinder, gentler non-Stalinist, non-communist Soviet Union. A lot of this kind of unfolded as he went along. But as Reagan would admit, as John Paul II would admit, if if they didn't get Mikhail Gorbachev in 1985, if Yuri Andropov had lived, it's hard to believe any of this would have turned out oh, as well. beautifully as it did. So I give Gorbachev a lot of credit as well. All right. But those those meetings were very consequential. And we know that they talked about the defeat of Soviet communism. We do. And, and the one that I think is most interesting, I talk about this in the book, it, it happened in September 1990 at Castel Gandolfo, which is the, the Pope's private residence sure. outside of Rome. And that bill got absolutely no publicity whatsoever. I, I, I found one three or four sentence blurb in USA Today. It was the only thing I could find in the literal English speaking world. And it, it just said something like the Pope and Reagan met. Reagan was in Europe for a nine-day tour. Pope said, God bless America. That was the end of it. Yeah. And I talked to Nancy Reagan about it. And, and in fact, I emailed Nancy on it three or four times over the years. As I was putting the book together, I was amazed at how many times I had asked her about this. And, and she said, yes, they talked about those things, the collapse of communism. She said, but it was just a warm and friendly meeting between two men who really admired one another. But, but to show their absolute humility, no ticker tape parade, yeah. no photo op, no meeting with the press. You know, hey, the two guys who took down you know, yeah. the Ruskies, put yeah. your arms around each other, yeah. nothing like that. Just, just a quiet behind the closed doors thing. And, and, and that was the end of it. They did what they felt that God literally called them to do. And 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 then and then they just quietly moved on with Reagan riding off into the sunset. All right. So, uh, in addition to the other factors you mentioned, one of the most consequential meetings and alliances, friendships, uh, the Pope and the President. Well, in fact, let me put it dramatically this way: May thirteenth, feast day of Our Lady of Fatima, nineteen eighty-one. Pope John Paul II was shot by Mahmoud Ali Asha, a Muslim yep. Turk. And this is what I lay out in the book. Doing this through Moscow, organized by the Soviet GRU, given the go-ahead by Yuri Andropov, who at the time would have been Vladimir Putin's boss at the KGB, although Vladimir Putin in no way was involved with this or knew about okay. it. This was too high level. If, if those bullets had succeeded... And in killing Ronald Reagan and John Paul II, March 30th and May 13th, 1981, then we're not having this conversation yeah. right now. Yeah. There would not have yeah. been the collapse sure. of communism. You take those two out, and none of this happens. Got it. Okay, that's uh, that's what I wanted. Uh, Paul Kengor, <laughs> with whom we're speaking, uh, he's the author of the book Kengor, K-E-N-G-O-R, the book A Pope and a President. Uh, the reason I do, people have said to me, if you, you know, if you meet somebody that you'd never met, who would it be? I said, really, I've met everybody I wanted to meet uh, in terms of consequential people. I've been very fortunate there. Uh, but if there was a meeting you would want to have listened to, fly on the wall, it would have been that. The only person, that would have I, been it. The only person I didn't meet, and I'm glad you added him to your list, who I wanted to meet, I've never met, is Lech Valenza. 
And when I mm. went to the Reagan uh, memorial service uh, here at Washington Cathedral, were you there? I was not. Okay. And Bill Clark was there. Yes, he was. At the, at the National Cathedral. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And, and th- this is, you'll appreciate this. He, he called me and said, I have tickets for you to come to this. And, and at the time, my book, God and Ronald Reagan, had just come out. And I had literally, I'm not making this up, I did, I think, 80 interviews that week. Wow. It was unbelievable. Wow. And I was literally on the phone with an AP reporter, like, doing play-by-play of, of the Reagan funeral service okay. as I was watching it on TV. There you and, go. And, and, and Clark told me, he said, he said, if you have that many interviews, I, I'm rescinding the invitation. There you Stay go. home and do that. Yeah, do it. Yeah, and talk about Reagan's faith. But, wow, so you were there. I did not know that. Yeah, well, here's, the, here's one for you. I know you collect these things and you'll embarrass me with it when I see you later in the fall. But I was looking around, and, of course, the the, the group there was unbelievable. You know, uh, Gorbachev was staring at the back of his head and Margaret Thatcher and all. But I was looking for Lech Valenza because I wanted to shake his hand because I figured he had something to do with all this, right? Uh, and yeah. you, you say he did. And I couldn't see him. I looked in front of me. I looked behind me. When, I went, when we got home, Elaine and I watched the th- ceremony we had just attended on C-SPAN. The reason I didn't see him is he was four people to my right in the same ah. row. Gosh. Wow. You know, wow. so they, yeah. they did a shot. Anyway. Um, all right, Paul. Yeah. We've, we've set the bar high here. I know. I know. I know <laughs> We're going to lower it now, aren't we? <laughs> I know. Maybe. I know what you think of Ronald Reagan. I won't say you're partial toward him, but uh, you're a little partial toward him. So am I. But let's let's talk uh, first about Ronald Reagan and uh, and Donald Trump. Uh, Her- Heritage put out a report saying, you know, better first year than Reagan, more conservative cabinet than Reagan. I said it was a more conservative cabinet than Reagan at least first term. What about in terms of policy, not personality? Obviously, very different guys here. But uh, in terms of policy and you know political ideology, political philosophy, uh, how do they, how do you compare? Yeah, well, I, I think um, I read the Heritage Report and other reports, and, and I must say, as somebody who was, you know, I'll just fess up and say this, I was a never-Trumper during the, during the campaign, uh, which I think gives me a lot of credibility in saying what I'm, what I'm about to say. Policy-wise, I think, he's, I think he's been pretty good, or at least on a lot of, a lot of the issues where I most feared uh, what he would be like. I, I've been pleasantly surprised. I, the, the court picks... His protection of religious liberty and religious freedom, and you know, oh, calling good. off good. the the dogs on some of the really crazy cultural stuff that Obama was shoving down our throats that that Hillary Clinton would have continued, you know everything from bathroom bills to uh, redefining marriage to uh, you know, suing nuns and florists and bakers and Hobby Lobby and HHS mandate, all of that has mercifully, blessedly stopped. And and by all things, by somebody who I think was probably, to borrow Ted Cruz's language, a New York liberal (laughs) just just five or six years ago. So he's he's been really good there. I do worry about him on some foreign policy and some things like tariffs. It's prob- probably another issue. But, but sticking with the Reagan first-year comparison, he, here's another area where he's been much better than Reagan, and, and that is, at least first-year, court appointments. And, and Talk I mean, about that compare, for a minute, the comparison. Go ahead, yeah. Yeah, compare Neil Gorsuch to Sandra Day O'Connor. Yeah. And I mean, it's I, I I would hope that this is going to be so much better. And of course, I should add here, as optimistic as we are about Gorsuch, we were about Sandra Day O'Connor as well, and and she right. turned out to be a pretty di- big disappointment. She was she was good on many things, but certainly on the cultural issues and pro life and Roe v. Wade. She wasn't good there at all. And here I'll, I'll mention Bill Clark again. It, Bill Clark, uh, you know, that that seat, Ronald Reagan initially offered it to Bill Clark. Right. And 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 Clark told him he said he said no. You know, you you had to convince me to come here to Washington to begin with. I'm here for for a few years. Very much the kind of Cincinnati. Uh, citizen statesman Clark was, right? I'm going to go serve my time in Washington, and then I'm going home. I'm going home to my ranch in California to serve my local community, return to being a judge, a lawyer, return to my family. 
And Clark said, no, I can't accept that position because I don't want to die in Washington. I didn't come to Washington to die in Washington. So I went to Sandra Day O'Connor. And, and I asked Bill, Bill Clark, I said, did, did you talk to Sandra Day O'Connor ahead of time? He said, I talked to her. Um, I think he said Bill Wilson. A, a few others talked to her. He said, but i got to tell you, in all honesty, um, I didn't confront her on the abortion question. I assumed that others had done that vetting. He said, but we really should have pulled her aside and said, what are your views on this issue? Mm-hmm. And a lot of us didn't do that. Yeah. Uh, I'm hoping, and I think it was done with Neil Gorsuch, not so much maybe by Donald Trump personally, but, but by some of Trump's advisors. Yeah. So I, I, I'm more optimistic with Gorsuch than, than, than what happened with Sandra Day O'Connor. And I think in court picks... Trump so far looks like he's been better than Reagan. Yeah, the uh, the people who watch this stuff, Federal Society people and others, tell me that the circuit court people he's appointed, federal federal bench, uh, are really good, really good, the best yes. best we've seen in a very long time. So that's which, which is the testimony to the people around him. I'm trying to think of the person's name, it, Leo. He oh yeah, yeah Leonard Leo. Of, Leonard Leo. Yeah, exactly. He, Leo. He's yeah, Trump's sure. basically. Right-hand man, quietly behind the scenes, yeah. who's making a lot of That's this right. happen. That's and right. here, too, I've got to give so much credit to the Heritage Foundation people and other conservatives who, while I was never Trump and vocally saying so throughout 2016, mainly because I wanted to avert what I thought was going to be a certain loss to Hillary Clinton. That was one of the things I was most afraid yeah. of. Like, please nominate sure. somebody who will beat Hillary sure. Clinton. Sure, but, but, sure. But, but, a, but a lot of the Heritage people and others said, okay, this is our guy. We have no other choice. This is who the Republicans are going to nominate. We've got to surround him immediately. And and that way we can be there to help make sure that the right people are appointed and put in place and the right policies are put in place. Because they looked at him as a guy truly without principles, let alone conservative principles. And they've stepped in and, and filled that gap and have indeed guided him in a largely conservative policy direction. Quick, That's been great. Quick uh, on the cabinet, uh, the Trump cabinet versus the Reagan cabinet first term. I want to leave myself out of it. I was second term. Yeah, they well the the, the cabinet and the staff that would uh, I think I think the picks here have been very good, but but one concern and this goes back I I think to our fears about Donald Trump's personality and behavior and, and instability. I've never seen as much turnaround yeah. in a cabinet, a staff, um, high-profile advisors. I mean, this has been a revolving door of firings and resignations in in, in one year. I, I mean, how many press secretaries have we seen already? Uh, Sean Spicer, who, um, you know, God bless him, poor guy, decent guy, had to spend his, his first day as press secretary arguing over Yep. A petty, almost childish thing about who had a bigger crowd yeah, size, yeah. Obama yeah. in 2009 or Trump in 2017. And as we now know, he only did that because the president wanted him to go argue that. That was one of the worst press conferences I've ever seen. Yeah, no, it, He was in and out in a few months. And then you know, the, the Mooch, Scaramucci. Okay, all right. all right. This is painful to me. I was not a never-Trumper, as you know, so you're inflicting yeah. pain on me here. I know, I know, I know. There's a lot of terror. But... But um, at the same time, uh, it seems to me, <laughs> back to what you said earlier, Paul, about um, you know the, the the Ted Cruz charge against Trump, New York liberal. This was a pretty pretty conservative cabinet, at least to begin with. Yes. And I think, uh, as even though the replacement rate is fast, is high, uh, will, as best I can tell, remain so. Well, and, and look at the latest revolving door with the National Security Advisor yes, sir. position. Yes, sir. It, but it, so the bad news is the revolving door. The good news, if you're a conservative, Who's is coming that Bolton's through. in there now. Who's coming right. through the revolving door? Yeah, yeah, yeah very. Good. That's right. So, so that's now gone more conservative. I know people who know McMaster who told me he's not a conservative at all, uh, but, but Bolton is. Right. Right. So, so that would be good unless Bolton finds that he can't work with Trump and is gone in six months or a year. And, 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 and I must add here, Ronald Reagan had more national security advisors than any previous president. He had like six or seven. And, and Bill Clark was run out in 1983 by a cabal of Nancy Reagan, Dick Darman, Jim Baker, Michael Deaver. Uh, who else was in this? The... Um, 
No, I know. He's you. always on CNN all the all the time now. He's a press guy. He's also a very liberal Republican. He he was uh, David David Gergen. He was part of David Gergen. Yep. David Gergen, Dick Darman, that whole group ran Bill Clark out. Colin Powell was one of the national security yeah. advisors. Dick Allen had been national security advisor for the first year and then was replaced by Clark January 1st, 1982. So Reagan had a bunch of national security yeah, advisors. Yeah, sure. So in a, in a sense there, uh, so so Trump, uh, uh, Reagan had instability in that position as well. Yeah. But Clark was there during the crucial time to set the course to, to win the Cold War. So so I am I am concerned about whether or not Trump can get along with his own staff that he's putting in place. Yeah. And, and frankly, I'm, I'm concerned that, uh, that, that he survives the first term. Right, I know. And that he wasn't so sloppy during the campaign that, that he maybe, in fact, did some things that could get him run out of office. I still think we could end up with Mike Pence. It's as possible. president before all of this is over, yeah. Yeah, and no, it's it's entirely possible. I worry about President Trump, too, because the attacks are coming from many angles. There are people in this town, Paul Kangor, who believe, some smart people I know, even though some of them are swamp creatures, as Donald Trump would call them, lawyers, others, <laughs> who think there's more risk from the women, the Stormy Daniels type thing, uh, than from uh, than from the Mueller, uh, the two could blend, of course, at some point. But you wrote a very interesting piece uh, about uh, Clinton and Trump vis-a-vis women and liberal hypocrisy. What are the differences between what's charged in regard to Donald Trump and what we know in regard to Bill Clinton? Well, the, the personal behavior of, of both of these guys at, at, earlier in their lives is morally reprehensible. I mean, and, and as conservatives, we have to say that he's, um, you know, he, he's on his third marriage. And I understand that, you know, people can have problems in previous marriages. And, but with, with him, I don't know to what degree the infidelities ever stopped. If the Stormy Daniels thing is true, that would have been shortly into his marriage to, to, to his current wife, Melania. And I, 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 I will say this in comparison to Bill Clinton. From what we know about Donald Trump so far in the first year, he's behaved himself in office. Yeah. He, hasn't, he hasn't done anything like that in office. And, and this is a very important distinction because I mean, you remember this very well in the 1990s. You were out in front writing on this probably more than anybody else. But we were told by the Clintonites, the Clintonistas, in 1992, that, first of all, none of this was true. Jennifer Flowers, uh, she's a bimbo, right? Paula Jones, trailer park trash. They insulted all these women. And and even among the liberals who thought that maybe it might have been true, there was at least a kind of an implicit understanding that, well, Bill's certainly not going to act this way as president. Right. He wouldn't be that much of a reprobate and he wouldn't be that stupid politically. Well, by 1998, seven years into the into his presidency, we're learning about what he was doing with one of his interns, yeah. uh, uh, Monica Lewinsky, uh, not to mention other women during while he was president. The, the whole Juanita Broderick thing, which happened when he was governor, that actually didn't explode until I think it was 1998, 1999. Yeah, that's correct. When yeah, when Matt Drudge and others reported it, and then and then Lisa Myers, to her credit, at NBC News, that's correct. she was the one that did the sit down. Yeah, she did the exclusive inter- interview with Juanita Broderick, and I re- I remember watching that and thinking, uh, wow, this this is very credible. I, I, I mean, she's alleging that the president of the United States. While he was governor, raped her, and well, you know, I certainly don't know for certain. It seemed like a, like a, she was making a credible case. Yeah, of course that that was before he was president. But the 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 Monica Lewinsky stuff, though, that happened while he was in the Oval Office. She's an intern of all things. She's she's in her mid twenties. And the things that he was doing to her were are just yeah. incredible, I, yeah. unbelievable. So with with Trump, at least what's being alleged now happened prior to his presidency. We don't know of him misbehaving during his presidency. I don't think he has. 
don't think he could if he wanted to. Yeah. <laughs> at, yeah. At, at this point, but what, that, but that's, but that, that's definitely a big difference. What about the misleading or lying uh, under oath by Bill Clinton, grand jury, or yeah. uh, to in the in the Kate Paula Jones case and so on? This and, and this that, matters too, right? It did, and that and that's what made it a a legal issue made it, it, to some believe, rise to the level of, of an impeachable offense. And you know, liberals on the other side would argue, well, even if it's technically lying and might be perhaps impeachable, you can't impeach a guy over lying about sex, right? Yeah, yeah, uh, right. Of, of course he's going to lie about this because this is his, this is his personal life, which, which you'll never hear liberals say this, but Bill Clinton really put a lot of Republicans in the House in a bad position because they have to think of the issue, well, do I want to vote for impeachment of a president over an issue like this? But then again, he did lie on it, and you know, and this is technically a legal violation. It, so technically, from a from a legal point of view, I should be able to vote for impeachment. But 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 what liberals did is they made the bad guys out to be. Right. The House Impeachment Committee, and of course, their ultimate villain of all was Ken Starr. Of course, right? Of course, of course. It, you know, the real bad guy here, right? The the real the the Torquemada, the 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 modern <laughs> Joe McCarthy. You know, the, the the really evil individual here was not Bill Clinton. It was Ken Starr. That's right. He, he was the bad right. guy. That's right. So they spent 1998 and 99 utterly vilifying Ken Starr. And that's what the focus of my American Spectator piece, I go through and remind people of what Sidney Blumenthal, of what James Carville, and even what Monica Lewinsky's liberal father, (laughs) Bernard Lewinsky, uh, the the things that they said about Ken Starr, not about Bill Clinton. I mean, Monica's dad coming forward and saying, this is unconscionable. Ken Starr! Yeah, no, I know, I, I know. You know, I've I've often said if that guy had just acted like a father for ten minutes, yeah. you know, if he had said, "I want to see the president," what the hell are you doing with my daughter? You know, right? That, uh, that right. Would, that would have changed the course of history too. I got you got to you yeah. got you got to love this now with the with the Me Too thing, and of course there's serious issues there. You know, uh, Harvey Weinstein and so on, but um, now. Uh, there's a reevaluation of Bill Clinton by the liberals. This, to me, is the height of, I don't know, I don't know how people can go out in public and say this. Oh, well, we might have been wrong about Clinton. So you see in the liberal uh, world, his ranking as president now has dropped significantly because of the benefit of time, and we sh- we were probably too forgiving. Wow, you know, I wrote a book called The Death of Outrage. Oh, well, oh, no, right. it didn't die. It was just sleeping. For twenty years, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah no, that's yeah. exactly. It, I, I mean, really, the hashtag Me Too movement could have started in the nineteen nineties. Yeah, if you had had a single, yeah, pro-choice feminist in all of Washington who had been willing to stand at the side of Paula Jones or Kathleen Willey or Jennifer Flowers or Juanita Broderick. Instead, they made fun of those women. I know. Right? Uh, oh, Jennifer yeah. spells her name with a G. Oh, yeah. what a dingbat! Yeah, you know, bimbo so eruptions. Women that were bimbo eruptions. Things. Right, bimbo eruptions. Yeah, 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 bimbo eruptions. And now here we are, a year into the Trump presidency, and liberals are practically kicking down the door of the Playboy Mansion. You know, going in looking <laughs> for dirt on Donald Trump. Let's. They, yeah, yeah. They, they've got they've got Anderson Cooper at CNN is running around interviewing former strippers, Playboy yeah, centerfolds, no, Stormy no, Daniels, no. on contract to sixty minutes. We have to sit down and interview porn stars. So, so it's crazy. It's like it, 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 it reminds me of what they did to Clarence Thomas, where uh, yeah, uh, yeah. it's like raw intelligence, right? We don't even interview the person right. behind closed doors. Just put her out there in front of the TV cameras and let it all hang out, right? You bet. Let me uh, ask so, you. you know, they don't hesitate. Let me ask you a last thing. This has uh, been so good, so interesting, and uh, love to hear your so well-informed perspective on these things. As, as a student of Reagan... And as someone who admires Reagan uh, enormously, as I do, and we know about the criticism uh, that he took constantly, I have said, you know, I I, I stand behind no one in my admiration for Reagan, except maybe Paul Kangor. But um, he had it bad, really bad. But I have never seen 
the attacks on a president like we're seeing now. The intentional, coordinated attacks, liberals, the media, uh, worse than on Reagan. Yes? Yeah, it's definitely worse. No, no question about it. Um, it was really bad on George W. Bush, too. I actually think at one point... Yeah, I, I think I think it, it was worse for Bush even than it was that's for Reagan. Reagan. For but W, so for W, with that. for W. Yeah, yeah, that's right. For W, what was so bad about that was George W. Bush is a genuinely decent individual. Sure, I mean they really, really, really trashed him. Now, now, and harder on Quail too, weren't they? I mean, on, oh, on, on Quail, Papa Bush's terrible. guy. Yeah, okay, but, terrible. But and, and, but and Trump setting almost, a record, right? Isn't he? Trump's setting a record, and, 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 and I mean, we could we could argue with, with Trump. I mean, Trump almost enjoys provoking them, right? Sure. Getting up in the morning sure. a tweet and calling somebody an SOB. <laughs> but so, so in, in a way, Trump likes getting in the arena and likes giving it right back. And I think what, what makes it even worse about George W. Bush, Dan Quayle, Ronald Reagan is these were sweet men. I, I mean, they were nice men. These were good guys who, George W. Bush, how often did he turn okay. the other cheek when right, we were begging right. him? Hey, you're never yeah, Trumpers coming out. You're never Trumpers coming out. These are sweet <laughs> guys. No, I'd agree. I mean, I, you know, I'm a supporter of Trump, but I wouldn't, I wouldn't describe him as a sweet, sweet talking guy. That's, that's fair. It, it's good to see him give it back. Yeah, no to, kidding. To the media. I, 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 yeah, I agree. I, I do. I agree. I, I do I do enjoy that. No, yeah, no, no question. Because they've had it coming for forty years, years or more, right? If, right. You know, since, eight years of George Bush crawling in the fetal yeah. position and just letting him kick away at him. I know. I know. I mean, it's, I it's good to see somebody punch back. Yeah. No question okay. about it. Okay. All right, Paul. We have uh, surveyed part of the landscape here. You are so good at this stuff, and we thank you very much. They're very. Uh, they're very privileged to have you at Grove City, those students. And I no, know, you're too nice. I know. Cause you're I've too nice. To I make it all up. Wait till you find out it's all false. Oh, no, you don't. Man, I'll never forget that first that session up there with you, and you produced these videotapes, and there I was, and mm. I'd never seen them before. And we treasure <laughs> those, and my family treasures those. They mean the world to yeah. me. So. You didn't know that stuff was recorded. Did I didn't you? know. I didn't yeah, know. they they recorded everything in the in the Reagan presidency, and I think it was your your nomination, right? It was the um, the ceremony. Your your mother was there, right? And yeah, yeah. Your family. Yeah, my mother in law. Yeah, my mother in law. Yeah, no, the okay. whole family and uh, the president uh, swore me in, and my little boy who's now thirty <laughs> thirty three. <Wow. laughs> uh, the president walked in and he said, "Ah, hey." And the president said, "Yeah, I'm doing fine. How are you doing?" Never forget, he was a little baby. Anyway, um, thank you, Paul. Thank you very much. Oh, sure. We yeah, appreciate talk it. Again soon. Paul Kanger, a right, pope and a president. Get the book, folks. Paul Kanger, K E N G O R, pope and a president. You're listening to the Bill Bennett Show. So, Kim Jong-un has met with Xi Jinping. There's rumors of possible talks of denuclearization of North Korea. A possible meeting with President Trump is likely. Let's jump in with Gordon Chang, author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Um, here we are, a very interesting point. The whole world is watching and waiting uh, for this meeting, or what may be a meeting, between President Trump and uh, Kim Jong-un. Uh, first of all, do you think it will happen? I think it will happen, Bill, because the North Koreans have a lot of motivation to actually see Trump. They certainly want sanctions relief because U.S. and U.N. sanctions are really starting to bite the regime. So, for instance, Chinese sources say that Office Number 39, which is the Kim Family Trust Fund, is running low on cash. South Koreans are actually saying uh, North Korea will run out of foreign currency reserves in October. I don't know if it's that dire, but the point is Kim needs money, so I think he'll do that. Also, I think that Kim is worried that uh, a new national security team, you know, called the War Cabinet, might actually strike North Korean facilities. So I suspect he wants to talk to Trump in order to forestall that. And and from our point of view, um, you know, President Trump has talked many times about talking to Kim Jong-un. And, of course, he would like to defuse the situation as well. So um, I think the meeting will occur. It may not occur by the end of May, which is uh, the date that President Trump uh, mentioned when he uh, originally announced this through the South Korean um, uh, visitors. But I think it will occur. 
Okay, well, let me unpack a couple of pieces there. Uh, some uh, without without saying so, I think I heard some compliments to the president. That is, the sanctions are working. Uh, and the appointment of John Bolton, others, suggests uh, that uh, the North Koreans may be taking him and um, our ultimatum more seriously. Yes, I think uh, the president's policy on North Korea has actually been quite good recently. Um, Got to remember, and, and this, I think, is the startling thing. On March 8th, when the two South Korean representatives went to the White House. That was the National Security Advisor and the Chief of the National Intelligence Service. Right. Trump made a decision, 45 minutes, to accept the offer extended by Kim Jong-un to talk. That was the right decision from a number of different perspectives. And, you know, this was done without interagency review, study, deliberations, consultations. We had all those things in previous administrations, and, uh, you know, Trump's predecessors came out with deeply misguided policies after a lot of uh, thought. Um, President Trump, um, just basically acting on his gut, made the right decision. And the reason why it was the right decision, um, I think, is because Kim, in addition to wanting sanctions relief and being worried about being attacked, wanted to drive a wedge between South Korea and the United States because he knew that Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president, wanted this Trump-Kim summit. And I think Kim felt that uh, Trump would turn him down. Um, And so, therefore, he could then sort of try to uh, wiggle South Korea away from uh, the United States, uh, which has really been seven-decade-old policy of the Kim regime. But Trump said, no, I'm not going to let that happen. Um, I'm going to accept Kim's offer, and Moon is going to be happy. Um, So um, this, I think, was really good policy on the part of the administration. People will say, okay, we're elevating Kim by actually just meeting the American president. Yeah, that's true. But we're also getting a lot of things in return for that. So I think the decision um, was certainly the right one to make on the part of the president. Now, the appointment of Bolton... Um, if I heard you right, the suggestion here is that there's a war cabinet being put together, which uh, suggests may suggest to Kim Jong-un that uh, we're really serious, But if that's true. But at the same time, I've heard, I don't know if it's true, is that Bolton is you know, hawkish on North Korea and may be opposed to such a meeting, in fact. Well, we'll see. Do you know? You know I don't know. Um, I mean, he, I, may, I've heard- he may not know either because he may not know the details. But go ahead. Yes, and Bolton hasn't taken his post yet. That starts April 9th. Um, I think the meeting should occur. Um, I, I've heard uh, John Bolton on Fox talk about that meeting, um, and he wasn't opposed to it. He just said that right. at that meeting, the United States should demand the immediate disarmament of North Korea. So I'm not sure that he's opposed to actually the get-together, though he might not exactly like it emotionally. I, I don't know. You know, someone's got to sure. ask John about that. But um, nonetheless, I do think that uh, Kim is concerned about an American strike on his facilities. And so, therefore, um, when you have the appointment of a new national security advisor and you've got a new secretary of state in the works, mm-hmm. uh, Mike Pompeo, um, I, this is probably weighing not only on the North Koreans, but also the Chinese. Yeah. Let's talk about the Chinese for a second, because uh, you talked about the March uh, 8th meeting. But what about this recent meeting? Uh, Kim Jong-un went to China. By the way, I'm fascinated. I, I, I love uh, travel stuff and geography and trains. And Have you ever been on that train? The train from, is it run from Pyongyang to, to uh, Be- Beijing? Um, yeah, it's it's not a regularly scheduled train, of course. I was wondering um, about that. I, okay, they don't uh, shuttle were, people back and forth, right? If you were to take, there is a train, though, between Beijing and Dandong, which is the Chinese border city through which that uh, Kim's train passed. Um, that takes about 14 hours um, with the regular stops. Now, Kim made that in better time, I'm sure, because um, his train wasn't stopping to take on and, and uh, discharge sure. passengers. Um, but nonetheless, it was a very long trip. Um, and I've taken train trips in China. Um, I can tell you that for the most part, they're not terribly fun, uh, though they are a lot better now because of high-speed rail. But that's another story. Um, you know, with why, didn't he fly? why didn't they fly? Well, Kim Jong-il, his father, didn't fly, and reportedly because he was concerned about assassination attempts. Mm -hmm. And so I think that uh, his son, Kim Jong-un, the current ruler, is probably taking a page out of that book. It adds to mystery. It's unusual. It's, you know, just Kim family weirdness. Um, Who knows? 
But, you know, you put all that together, it's a train ride rather than a flight. And by the way, I haven't been on Air Koryo, which is the North Korean flag carrier. But if I were Kim Jong-un, I think that that probably was the right decision not to get on that plane. I was just going to ask you, is there, uh, I'm sorry, for my please indulge my idiosyncrasy here. Is there a commercial air carrier in North Korea? Yeah, Air Koryo. Um, it um, flies uh, to Beijing. Um, that's how most people get to Pyongyang. Um, and matter of fact, if you want to meet um, people who are going to Pyongyang, all you have to do is stay at the duty-free area near the Air Koryo gate, and, and you'll see a lot of people picking up their booze and whatnot on their way to the North Korean capital. Really? Okay, but it's probably harder to go the other way, right, to get out of North Korea into China. A few more formalities if you want to leave um, Pyongyang. Yes, you're right. That's an understatement, right? Yes, that's an understatement. Okay, I mean, you can't leave, right? Um, a lot of people can't leave. Um, even some foreigners, as we know, can't leave. Uh-huh. Um, North Korea is a dangerous place to travel to, which is the reason why the State Department slapped a ban after Otto Wambier's unfortunate incident yeah. there. Yeah. And so um, Americans should stay out of North Korea. All right, let's talk about that meeting. What was that for? Was that for him to get guidance, Kim Jong-un, from uh, the Chinese about what to do? I th- uh, There's a lot of disagreement about this because you're talking about two opaque regimes, but I think it was not a Kim Jong-un meeting. It was a Xi Jinping, the ruler of China. Uh, Xi Jinping wanted that meeting because Kim's first foreign trip was scheduled for um, April when he was going to meet Moon Jae-in, the South Korean president. He was going to be, that's actually technically a foreign trip because it was going to be at the Peace House in Panmunjong, which is the south side of the military demarcation line, in other words, South Korea. His second foreign trip uh, was supposed to meet President Trump someplace. I think the Chinese felt that it would be wrong for their vassal, and that's the way they look at the Koreans, it would be wrong for their vassal to meet the South Korean and American leaders before they met the Chinese leader. And so China was reasserting itself into the process. One of the reasons why I think it was very good for President Trump to accept Kim's offer to talk directly was it cut the Chinese out of the process. And for the most part, the Chinese have been a malign influence in nuclear negotiations. Xi Jinping, the Chinese ruler, said, look, I'm not being cut out. I'm going to assert my position. And so therefore, he forced Kim Jong-un to go to the Chinese capital. That's my interpretation, which I think fits the facts a lot better than people saying, oh, you know, Kim Jong-un wanted this meeting. I I think he didn't. Sounds plausible to me. And, and, And at the meeting, you suspect he was given instruction and direction on how to conduct himself during the meeting with Park, as well as the meeting with Trump. Uh, Almost surely. One thing that's really interesting, Bill, when you see pictures of Kim Jong-un in North Korea, he's usually walking around, and you have note-takers behind him, generals, high officials, taking notes from what Kim says. Xinhua News Agency, the official Chinese uh, media outlet, released these photographs of Kim taking notes when the Chinese were speaking. That is critical, I think, to show the nature of the relationship. You didn't see Xi Jinping taking notes when Kim Jong-un was talking, and that's uh, part of, um, I believe, the essential nature of the relationship. A lot of people have said up to now, Bill, oh, you know, problems between Pyongyang and Beijing, the Chinese have lost influence. You know, all of that, I think, was more or less theater. You know, the Chinese don't expect obedience all the time. When they really want something, they pull the string. Xi Jinping really wanted something. He pulled the string. Kim ended up in the Chinese capital. Remember, Xi Jinping was not in the North Korean capital. It was the other way around, and and that was highly symbolic. So I think we see the nature of the relationship. China controls North Korea, and we American, and especially policymakers, need to understand that because we can't let the Chinese, or we shouldn't let the Chinese get away with this, oh, we have nothing to do with North Korea, they're beyond our control. Um, We've accepted that narrative far too long. Okay. Yeah, I noticed him uh, taking notes. I, I certainly did. Uh, by the way, another child's question here. Do they speak the same language? Exactly the same language? Um, you mean the Chinese and the North Koreans? Yeah. Um, well, it, the North Koreans speak uh, Korean and, and the Chinese are, are, are speaking in their own tongue. Kim what do you suppose? And, and the small, I mean, I was just watching the small talk and I was wondering what language. Is it probably Chinese? Do, do we suppose Kim Jong-un understands Chinese? He, I don't think so. Um, that was probably staged for cameras. Okay. The okay. important thing is that Kim Il-sung, the founder of the North Korean regime, was Chinese speaking. And not only was he Chinese speaking, Bill, 
he also was a member of China's Communist Party. Um, so oh. there was a very, very close relationship. I don't think Kim Jong-il, the son of Kim Il-sung and the father of the current mm-hmm. leader, I mm-hmm. don't think he spoke Chinese, and I don't think Kim Jong-un does either. And they're not communists, correct? Another teenager's question here uh, in, in North Korea. No, they're not. A matter of fact, Marxist-Leninism was taken out of the North Korean constitution. Not that the constitution means anything, but it was highly symbolic. North Korea hasn't been communist for a very long time. It has a unique system, which is based on uh, a number of things, including Confucianism. Uh, There's elements of Shinto worship. Um, Kim Il-sung developed his own system. He was a genius at being a dictator. Uh And Uh um, they have not had a system that they've described as communist for a very long time. Although, of course, we know them uh, to be in the quote-unquote communist bloc during the Cold War. That's certainly true. Um, But they've got a system which is substantially different than what we see in um, this for other communist countries. You know, it is, um, China is very much uh, moving back towards a, a 1950s style Chinese communism. Um, so their systems are diverging. Uh, I hope you don't mind these primer, primer questions. <laughs> you know, usually you get asked these on TV, but I'm just so curious. I realize how little I know. Talking about his grandfather, Kim Il-sung, uh, I remember because I was at uh, a dean at a college in one of our highly active Marxist groups. The kid who ran it was a, a that was his hero, Kim Il Sung. Um, yeah, I know for whatever for whatever ridiculous reasons. Welcome to American universities, huh? Anyway, um, is there bad feeling, Gordon, on the part of the Chinese uh, that they have fallen that North Korea has fallen away from communism? I think Chinese leaders are insulted by the North Koreans. Um, who don't uh, all the time pay the respect that the Chinese feel that they're due. But the relationship, though, uh, and, you know, sometimes gets a little tense. But nonetheless, the Chinese retain control because the Chinese know they have influence. They know that the North Koreans will do what the Chinese want when the Chinese ask. The Chinese don't ask all the time because they don't think that it's necessary. Um, but we have seen, um, especially over the last year, there have been times when Beijing has wanted something and the North Koreans have complied. For instance, um, North Korea was firing off ballistic missiles last year at the pace of, let's say, once every two weeks or so. They stopped in about the four to five weeks before the start of the Communist Party, the Chinese Communist Party's 19th National Congress, which started October 18th. And I think that was because Xi Jinping, who was trying to cement his power, told the North Koreans, um, you're not going to do anything that's going to disrupt relations and problems. And, and also at the end of the 19th National Congress, when Xi Jinping got his second term as General Secretary of the Communist Party, Kim Jong-un, and this surprised a lot of people, sent a warm message of congratulations to Xi. Um, but that seems to me to be, a, you know, consistent with what um, appears to be the case, and that is when the Chinese want something, they get it. And Xi Jinping wanted that warm message of congratulations. He wanted the North Koreans to stop being provocative in the run-up to the 19th Congress, and the Chinese got it. And okay. this time, okay. Xi Jinping got Kim to go to Beijing when Xi Jinping wanted it. All right, let's go back. Let's get stay with wanted it for our last couple of questions with you, Gordon Chang, in terms of the meeting between Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, which we think will take place, you think will take place. That's good enough for me. Um, you said early on one of the reasons Kim Jong-un would want the meeting is the sanctions are starting to bite. Would you call it file 33 or file? Office um, number 39. Office number 39. That's that's the holdings, the Kim Jong-un financial holdings are diminishing. That's the personal family holdings, um, and that's the money that Kim has used for launching missiles and doing all sorts of things. Okay. It, it's, okay. As people say, it's the slush fund. Okay, the slush fund. Is is that enough of the sanctions and the decline in that uh, slush fund? Uh, what's the quid pro quo here? We know what we want. We want an end to them launching missiles, making and launching missiles, right? Is that enough to get them to do that? What does Kim Jong-un want out of this deal if the deal, uh, if he grants what uh, Donald Trump wants, which is an end to this missile proliferation, well, Nuc- we know nuclearization? 
Yeah, we know what the Kim family wants because there's been a seven-decade-old policy um, going back to Kim Il-sung, and that is they want the U.S. Um, to break the alliance with South Korea, get our 28,500 service personnel off the peninsula so that the Kim family can then intimidate South Korea into submission. Um, they want, and, and the way stations on that would be a peace treaty, ending the formally the Korean War, because the Korean War uh, ended uh, on July 1953 with an armistice. That was the end of the fighting, but there has been no formal peace treaty, which means we're still in a state of war with not only the North Koreans, but also the Chinese. Interesting. Um, Didn't know Kim that. Kim Jong-un wants a peace treaty because then he's going to make the argument to South Korea, well, you don't need the Americans anymore because we've got peace. And so it's always been American policy um, to um, make sure that the alliance is strong and that we can defend South Korea. And um, this is going to be a matter of uh, big contention with the, the North Koreans. Could we agree to that? Could we agree to that if, if uh, let's say, they gave up nuclearization missiles and it was enforceable and we could inspect it? Could we live with that? I think that there's a lot of things that we could live with, which probably are not going to happen. But one of the things that I could live with, um, and I don't, I'm not speaking for anybody but myself, is if there were to be um, North Korea to give up all of its nuclear weapons, all of its long-range and short-range ballistic missiles, and that we have the strictest uh, regime uh, inspections regime on Earth, also that the North Koreans, um, as a price for a peace treaty, disband their army. Okay, you know, you cannot have a peace treaty, even if North Korea doesn't have... Um, nuclear weapons and ballistic missiles, because they still have their army forward deployed on the demilitarized zone, and that threatens South Korea. So if you're going to have a peace treaty, there's got to be real peace, which means uh, the North Koreans have got to pull back their army at first and then disband it. And then it's possibility of having a peace treaty. Um, but that is not going to happen, Bill. Um, I actually think that we could denuclearize North Korea. Um, that seems to me to be possible. But actually disbanding the North Korean army, um, that ain't going to happen in our lifetimes. Would that be a reasonable, would that be any kind of reasonable deal that the president might accept, should accept? Okay, they're denuclearized, but they keep their army. Or is that just giving um, up South Korea? Um, and, and along with the denuclearization, we remove our 28,000 troops. Yeah, um, we shouldn't do that. We okay. should just insist that North Korea adhere to its obligations under the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, various agreements they've had with us and with South Korea to um, give up their nuclear weapons. Um, we can then talk about other things in connection with that, not a peace treaty, um, but I would think that we could talk about, for instance, um, opening up uh, consular relations, which I think are a good idea anyway, because we want the North Koreans to talk to us rather than the Chinese. We need to disabuse the Chinese that they are the center of a solution. You know, ultimately, if you were to step back and say, what would, should the Korean peninsula look like? Yeah, you could have, for instance, a peace treaty. You could have both armies on both sides of the demilitarized zone um, um, be reduced in size substantially. You could even then have the U.S. take its troops out. But that's really, really, really long term. Short term, I think that what we should be looking for is North Korea gives up its ballistic missiles and its nuclear weapons. We then um, have some sort of recognition of the North Koreans. Um, we might even supply aid under um, certain strict conditions. There's all sorts of various combinations of stuff we can do, but we should always remember that we should not leave South Korea defenseless. And the North Koreans, exactly, that's exactly what they want us to do. That's not what we should do. They would be defenseless even if North Korea gave up its nuclear weapons. Absolutely, because North Korea has a fearsome military, which I mentioned is forward deployed on the demilitarized zone, ready to strike South Korea. It also has things we don't talk about, which are most of the time um, chemical weapons, biological weapons. Yeah, so they've yeah, got a lot of WMD yeah, there. Yeah, and South Koreans aren't a match, right? South Korea has a military. If you take out the WMD, South Korea has a better military. Um, but there's WMD yeah. there, which yeah. really complicates the picture. Sure. How likely, I'm, I'm sorry to keep you, let you let us know when you got to go, but this is so interesting. How likely, I mean, is it is it possible that we could get this deal, what you just described? I'm an optimist. I'm okay. an optimist that we can get the North Koreans to give up their nuclear weapons. Uh, and the reason is, um, this is not a North... Everyone says, oh, you know, Kim Jong-un will never give up his weapons. Um, well, Kim Jong-un doesn't want to give up his weapons. 
and he won't give up his weapons under the current set of incentives under which he is operating. But President Trump can change those incentives substantially. And the one thing that I think that the president, our president has fallen short on is um, imposing costs on China for its support of North Korea yeah. in ways, in support which is extremely dangerous, such as supplying components, equipment, and materials for North Korea's nuclear weapons program. So if President Trump were, for instance, to start imposing costs on Chinese banks for money laundering, I think that uh, we could see a very different set of incentives. And, and Kim Jong-un, as people say, and this is absolutely true, he wants regime survival, um, and he believes nukes are essential to that. But he has never had to face the choice of nukes or regime survival. Okay. President Trump has the power to make him force that cho- to face that choice, and it's up to us to do it. So this is not a Kim question. It's a Trump question. And in the mind of Trump, uh, I just heard a commentator an hour ago, say, look, I think, uh, this is a pretty well-informed guy, too, saying, look, I think this is all basically a, a ruse. You know, we've tried everything, and this is just before we lay the big stick on him. Well, I've heard that, of course, and, and many people say that. And um, my point has been that uh, at some point we may be forced to use our military, but we're a long way from that because okay. we have a lot of non-military options, and we have not employed those tools yet. And the case against war, at least at this moment, is that we have yet to really begin to impose costs on China and uh, Russia for supporting North Korea. We need to do that before we consider the use of force. Right. So there's a shot. I mean, there's a shot that that something positive could happen here. Yes, absolutely. You know, and it's not just this issue. It's a lot of other issues. You know, people underestimate substantially underestimate American power. We don't use American power to our full extent. And I'm not talking about our military. I'm just talking about um, our domination of um, global markets, our strength of our economy. Access to America is so important. Um, And people underestimate that. They think, you know, we're not in a position that that the Chinese own the 21st century. This is just like... The 1970s with uh, Nixon and detente and Kissinger, and then Reagan came along and proved all of those guys wrong. Yeah, no, you taught us uh, years back uh, that uh, we're the debtor nation puts us in a better position, right? Absolutely, Bill. We have the tools to do it. We just lack political will. And what we need, and we have a leader right now who exhibits flashes of political (laughs) will. Yeah, sure does. Sure does. We'll see. Gordon, thank you very much. Very generous with your time, and thanks for uh, answering my uh, sort of elementary 101 questions. Very interesting. Thank you, sir. Well, Thank you so much, Bill. This has been a blast, and and I really appreciate the opportunity. All right, that was Gordon Chang, author of Nuclear Showdown, North Korea Takes on the World. Well, that's just about it for this episode. To catch up on previous episodes of the show, go to BillBennettShow.com. You can follow me on Twitter at William J. Bennett, and you can like me on Facebook. Just search Bill Bennett. Feel free to email the show. I'd love to hear from you. It's BillBennettPodcast at gmail.com. Please share this podcast with your family and friends. We'll catch up next week.